Well, before I, I left for a week of vacation, and by the way, I had a wonderful time. Thank you for asking. Got to be with my grandson, Cooper, over in Tallahassee and his parents, and uh, we had a great time. But before I had left, I had been preaching through the, the book of Philippians, so we covered all four of those chapters and four continuous sermons, and James did a wonderful job talking about stewardship and touching on the last passage in this section, which was on the, uh, the confrontation with the, with the uh, Pharisees and the Herodians about uh, paying tax to Caesar. Boy, what an appropriate um, topic that was for last week. And I'm going to touch on it again today. I, I want to look at, with you at chapter 22 because I've missed part of it being away or focusing on Philippians, but I think it uniquely speaks to our time and place. You guys are aware that this is a unique time in our country, right? Multiple levels. Don't have to repeat them all. You're living through them. On top of everything else, hurricanes, fires in not only California, but Texas. You know, and then Bishop Menz calls me last night and says, there's this giant sinkhole. Alex, are you okay? And I don't know if you know this, but there's a, there's a sinkhole on the west side of Gainesville right now. So it's like, of course there is, right? Everything else is going on. But I believe that Jesus in chapter 22 of Matthew says not only a words of peace and hope for the people that he was speaking to the first time, but I believe he also is speaking words of peace and hope to us. And I believe Jesus takes the questions that are being asked of him, and they're, they're important questions. They're questions of loyalty, they're questions of destiny, and they're questions of priority. And Jesus takes those questions, he answers them, and then he asks back a question that profoundly silences all the religious leaders. So I want to look at that with you. If you want to grab your phone and look at that QR code, I learned that word from last time I talked to you. The QR code is the little, little, little interesting uh, icon there in front of you. You can pull up the scriptures. If you've got a Bible app, you might want to take a look at it because we're actually going to go a little bit beyond just the reading that I did from Matthew 22. Let me set the context for you really briefly here. Beginning of chapter 21, Jesus has his triumphant, entry into Jerusalem. This is the last time he comes to Jerusalem. Jesus comes several times over the course of his public ministry. This is the last time. This is when he comes in and he clears the, the, the money changers out of the temple and he says, my father's house is to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. And he turns over tables and does all sorts of things that could be considered politically incorrect for his time and place. And then he continues to talk to the, to the religious leaders, and he tells a series of parables that I missed while I was preaching through Philippians. Basically, they, they are meant to convict and to be controversial with regard to the religious leaders, showing how they have failed to recognize him as the person of the Christ, the son of David, who's come into the world. Jesus means to provoke them, and he does the trick. They are provoked. And so we're told that Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders, the different sects, S-E-C-T-S, of Israel all begin to ban up. And as Father James talked about last week in his sermon a little bit, um, 
you, he, they come to him first, and it's the Herodians and the Pharisees. Now, who were the Herodians? Well, Herod, you get the name there. They were, they were those who, who went along with the, with the, the government, the status quo. They were, they, were in, they were impressed by what Herod was doing, and they were very supportive. They were, they were loyalists to the, to the kingdom that was running underneath the Roman headship. They combined with the Pharisees some very unlikely people to be ganging up together. Because the Pharisees, of course, detested the Romans and where Herod was complicit with the Romans, the Pharisees were always speaking against the Romans. And so these are, these are political enemies and yet they come together to try to pin Jesus down. And the scripture actually tells us, just going back to that first, that piece there from last week, they, that in verse 15, that they began to, to plot together to figure out how to trip Jesus up in his words. And so they bring him a question. And this is the first question, the question of loyalty. Is it right, good teacher, to pay the temple tax or not? And, you know, everything in our culture wants a binary, it's a binary question, right? It's, it's a yes or no question, you know? And everything you can think of, you watch the debate this week or other debates, you know that's the question. Yes or no? Answer the question. And of course, politicians are great at not giving us a straight answer sometimes. But Jesus also is not going to give them a straight answer. He's not going to just say, yes, pay the temple tax. No, don't pay the temple tax. There's a lot of things going on behind there. Can't slow down too much to give you all the the background detail. Father James did a good job of, of laying some of that groundwork last time. But the bottom line is that that this is a head tax. This is, this is simply a, a one denarius tax, what would have been basically a day's wages for a, a day laborer in Israel. One day's wages that you paid once a year just for the privilege of being a subject of Rome. And the coin actually had inscriptions on it. It had a picture of Caesar's face, you know, inscripted there, if you will, an icon. It's actually the word for icon in Greek that's used there. And, and it says, king and 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 priest and uh, son of God, written right on the coin. So it's pretty clear that, that, that Caesar considers himself to be the Lord and Savior of the world. Everybody's watching, and Jesus says, well, I don't have a coin, but give me a coin. And he, they give him a coin, which is interesting. He takes the coin, even though it's got this blasphemous saying on it, and he says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Brilliant answer. Brilliant, right? Brilliant answer. Why? Because he, he's not saying, oh, n- never. Do not pay. Don't, don't give this to Caesar. This is blasphemous. And, you know, he, doesn't, he didn't start a revolt. At the same time, he makes it clear that while we comply with, with what we're, you know, we render to Caesar. It's his coin. Give it to Caesar. Render it to him. Render to God what is God's. Well, who has the icon of, of God? It's us. We're, Genesis says we're made in the image of God. We have his image and likeness. And so we're to render unto God what is God's. And so while we, we, we comply with the government, we pay Caesar the tax, whoever Caesar is, we, we recognize that our higher loyalty, our first loyalty is to God. Above and beyond. It's an incredible answer. Because it doesn't mean revolt, but it doesn't also mean that we place our full loyalty in first place of importance on Caesar, whoever Caesar is, whatever government may be. And I understand we don't serve as Caesar. We're not living in first century Rome. 
But I think it's important to hear Jesus' words. He says when it comes to loyalty, get this right. Your first and highest priority, your first and highest loyalty is to God. I think sometimes we switch that, and we as Christians are as susceptible to that as anyone else of, of, of switching that and, and coming and paying some homage to God. We're here on Sunday. We're listening to this sermon, Alex. We're, we're engaged with, with Christianity. But really, the greater first alliance is to Caesar. We render unto God what is God's, and we render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and we, we reverse the order. Just look at what we, how, we watch our, how we spend our time. How much political news do you watch versus how much time do you spend reading your scriptures? Okay, I'm being into metal now, I realize. But I want you to get this point down firm. Our highest and first priority needs to be allegiance to God, wherever that takes us. So he settles the Herodians and the Pharisees in this question. They go away. Next comes the Sadducees, another piece of the scripture that we don't have today. But the Sadducees come. The Sadducees are... um, they're the religious elite, okay? They're the Episcopalians of their day, all right? And I can say that because I was an Episcopalian. They, they are the ones who are in the places of power. There's a national cathedral, so to speak, in their name in Washington or in Jerusalem. And so they're in power. But, but first, Second Timothy, Paul says that they have an appearance of godliness, but they, depi- they deny the power thereof. And, and so it was true of the Sadducees. You see, they, they had religious trappings, but they didn't believe any of it. They didn't believe in an afterlife principally. They didn't believe in spiritual things. They didn't believe in angels, for instance, and demons. And, and so they had kind of kicked out all the supernatural. I'm sorry if I've offended you as an Episcopalian, but, but, but you get the sense of what I'm talking about. This is the, these are the people in the spiritually elite places of authority. They come and they try to trap Jesus in an issue of destiny. And they do it by trying to trap him about this idea of, of, well, you believe in an afterlife, Jesus. So, okay, let's just say that one guy, uh, one guy marries a woman and then he dies and she marries his brother. You know, this is the ancient custom that you took the wife of your brother in. But he's, there's seven brothers and she marries them all as they die and then she dies and they go to heaven. Whose wife is she? And Jesus understands that what they're doing is they're trying to make fun of the idea of an afterlife and saying it's preposterous. I mean, who would you? And Jesus, of course, says, well, you don't understand what the afterlife is all about, that they're not, they're not married nor given in marriage. And, and, and he begins to explain to them about the nature of, of the afterlife, about eternity, heaven, and, and they can't understand it. But really, Jesus gets to the very root of what their problem is, which is the question of death. Can I say to you that People, even who say they don't believe in God and who don't have any belief in an afterlife or heaven, they too, like all of us, are asking the question about death. Well, how do I know that? Well, look at what they say in verse 32. What Jesus says in verse 32, I'm in the wrong chapter. That's why I can't get there. Um, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. It's a question of destiny. What, what happens after this life? And if there is an afterlife, what is the priority of that life in terms of how we live in this life? You see, if you're a Sadducee and you don't believe in this afterlife, this is all there is. And so it's what you can make of this temporal time that counts 
But Jesus emphatically talks about the afterlife and explains the nature of it and more importantly speaks into their fear of death and says, God is not the God of the dead but of the living. Isaac, Abraham, and Jacob are not dead. They're alive with God in eternity. And they're silenced in the moment. Our culture is thinking about death even if they don't want to believe that there's anything that follows it. And that is why we must, as believers, proclaim long and boldly the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's so essential. Esau Macaulay, we listened to a couple of, uh, one of his couple of interviews with him, and uh, he's uh, a theologian within the Anglican Church, North America, lives and works at Wheaton, Illinois, and Esau was asked about black rage and anger, and he, and this is what Esau said in his book, Reading While Black, he says, he says, if God can conquer death, if God can handle death, that he can handle my rage. He can handle my anger. And I would add to that, that if God has conquered death, he can handle my failures and my fears. Jesus silences the Sadducees because he boldly proclaims and will demonstrate by his own death and resurrection very shortly after this that he has conquered death. And if he's conquered death, if the resurrection is true, and it is, that he can handle our fears, our anger, our shame, our failures. He can handle it all. And we as believers have to boldly proclaim our faith in the resurrection. All of Christianity hangs on that. Third group comes. Well, the Pharisees come back. And this is where we pick up today. So now I'm caught up to you. So now you can start my time on my sermon. So that was just background for me. Just kidding, just kidding. But Jesus, here come the Pharisees again. Keepers of the law. These are the Bible thumpers. These are the guys that know their word really well. They've memorized it. And, and they're, they, they're, they're sharp. They're, they're fundamentalists, if you will. They're, they are really particular about the scriptures. And they bring Jesus, the, and they bring their best teacher, and they say, teacher, which is the greatest of the commandments? And Jesus takes Deuteronomy, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and, and, and Leviticus 19, love your neighbor as yourself, and he pairs them together perfectly. And, and, and in this genius simplicity, he says, here's all the law and the prophets. Everything hangs on these two things. If you're a, if you're a brilliant teacher, you can make things very easy for folks to understand, and Jesus does that. Love God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With everything you have, you love God. And then the manifestation of that love is how you will love other people. First John says, if you can't, you, if you can't love your brother who you can see, how can you, can you say you love God whom you can't see? Our love for God, as he is, our allegiance to him, should manifest in how we love and care for other people. Wow, he, he blows it up. <laughs> You know, you, you, you might have tripped up over that Exodus passage that we read a minute ago where, where, where Elena was reading and it says that if, if you mistreat the sojourners and the foreigners and you, you make them, you know, don't take care of their widows and their orphans, then I'm going to come and I'm going to kill you. You know what Jesus, you know what God is saying in that in Exodus? 
He's saying, don't be like the Egyptians, right? He's just brought them out of slavery where they have been treated like slaves, where they have been mistreated and abused, and God has heard their cry, and he's brought them out of Exodus, and he's saying, don't you dare be like Egyptians, or you're gonna face my judgment because I'm a God of justice, and I will bring that down. Love your neighbor as yourself. In Luke, when when the young scribe comes and says, well, who is my neighbor? Jesus says, let me tell you a story about a Samaritan. And I can't go into that, but you know the story of the Good Samaritan. This too is your neighbor, and we're called to do it. But the reality is, we're not capable of keeping the law. We're not even capable of keeping the summary of the law. You know, that's, the reason why we say it every week is not to make you feel bad and to try to get you to work harder at keeping the law. When we say, Love your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor yourself. We don't say that to make you feel bad. We say that to remind ourselves that it is only by the grace of God that any of us can stand. It is only because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross that any of us can, can declare ourselves in Christ to be made righteous, to be given the grace and mercy of God. We say it to remind ourselves that we need Jesus, not to try harder. And we're told three questions, three amazing answers, and the questions stop. And Jesus asked the last question. And here I end. Jesus asked the last question. And he goes right to the heart of things. He says, the Messiah, he calls him the Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah, the King of Israel. Whose son is he? Meaning, when God sends his Messiah, whose son will he be? And of course, they answer David, because David was the greatest king of Israel, and he's the foretaste, if you will, of the Messiah to come. And all of Israel awaited. And many of the people that were listening were hoping that Jesus might be this Messiah, this king, who would overthrow their Roman oppressors, and he would bring the glory of David's kingdom back to Israel. Jesus has been proclaimed the son of David, as he made that triumphal entry, beginning of chapter 21, and by these blind guys sitting by the road when he goes through Jericho, who cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus is talking about himself. Who do, in other words, he's saying to them, whose son is the Messiah? Whose son am I? And then he quotes from Psalm 110 and says, then why is it that David calls the Messiah his Lord? And Psalm 110 is probably the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. Because as Paul says brilliantly, and I keep using the word brilliant, I don't know why, but Romans 1, he says that that in the flesh he was declared the son of David, but in the spirit he was declared the son of God. How is it that David's offspring is David's Lord? Now we know because he was born of the Virgin Mary, and yet he is the Son of God, fully God and fully man. But they don't understand that. But Jesus lays it out there in Psalm 110, and he says, whose son is he? And he leaves them profoundly struggling to understand the uniqueness of who he is as both the seed of David and the Lord of David. And you know what? 
Psalm 110 is sort of like Psalm 2. It's their, their battle psalms. They're psalms about the Messiah coming up and warrior king fighting the battles. Psalm 110 declares that he's both the king with the scepter, but he's also, he's also the priest in the order of Melchizedek. The king of righteousness, the king of peace. And he's ready to go into battle. And Jesus declares to that first century audience, to those religious leaders, I am the son of God who is both the seed of David and the Lord of David. Jesus says, I alone deserve your highest loyalty. I alone can assure you of your destiny in eternal life. I both set and help you accomplish my priorities. The scripture tells us that the religious leaders are silent. They won't speak again until it's crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And we're told that Jesus begins to address the crowd. And he says, these guys, unless your righteousness exceeds them, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. But he says, if you make me your loyalty, if you make me your destiny, if you make me your priority, then you will know my life. And then he demonstrates that by giving his life on the cross, saying, I love you this much that I will offer myself for you. And then he rises from the dead to vindicate himself as king of kings and lord of lords. Friends, as we walk through the next couple of weeks, don't forget where your highest loyalty needs to lie. Don't forget your destiny I like it when one preacher I listen to on Twitter says, don't lose your faith over this election. Don't lose your salvation over this election, is actually what he said. Remember your destiny and remember your priority. Amen.